came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Ksenia. How are you today? Hi, Jason. I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. I'm excited that we're halfway through the season. Yeah, nearly, right? It's episode four today. And well, um, we're doing nine, which is great and helps us survive, right? So. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully everybody's semester is going well, wherever you are in the world listening. And um, yeah, like we were saying last week, you know, every week seems to be building uh, more more context into this dis- discussion about how we how we do research and how we can um, challenge existing norms. And uh, it's been amazing to just continue to learn from early career scholars who are doing things differently, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, before this season, we always touched upon kind of research and methodologies, you know, and philosophies and ethics, but we've never really dug deep into it. Um, mm. And whilst I appreciate that this content may kind of seem quite academic, but actually some of these discussions, I think, that we've been having and that we are um, about having season six um, are really related to practice as well and to just how we understand disasters and kind of how we formulate the narratives of disasters. Mm. And, you know, talking of narratives of disasters, um I'm also really excited that we're finally, we've been a little bit slow in in that sense um, this year, but finally we are starting our live streams again. We've taken a couple of months off, right, to just kind of settle in (laughs) into into 2022. Mm -hmm. Now now we're settled. Um, So we've got um, two live live streams coming up in March. And on the 10th of March, we um, are welcoming back um, San Montano and Gonzalez Araldi to talk about their books that came out last mm-hmm. year so that's going to be fun we had to reschedule this live stream but hopefully it'll go ahead in march um and then in the end of march also we are hoping to uh, have a conversation with our friends um jamie vickery and carly Purdom and their colleagues um who have been really involved in the working group on prisons and homelessness um and i'm really really looking forward to that discussion because we've we've engaged with them quite a lot right recently and we've had some really really interesting conversations about kind of vulnerability and the process of making somebody vulnerable and kind of the process of uh, making vulnerability a threat so yeah it's going to be so much fun yeah i know you're kind of alluding to work that we're doing with them but that's exciting that uh, we can collaborate on some written work too with um, those folks who have a a different perspective on vulnerability which is i think going to be something different for our field right yeah absolutely and i'm also really excited that we're working with darren on that piece as well Mm. but you know no spoilers yet it will 
eventually tiny emerge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, eventually emerge out of the black hole of kind of academic publications. Yeah, reminds me I need to do some some uh, <laughs> review. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. Anyway, let's move to today's episode. So far in the season, we've been really focusing on researchers' positionality, and it's been really inspiring to hear about various research approaches that allow reflection on different positionalities as well as acknowledgement of power relations. So we're very excited that we're moving away from the quite dominant philosophy of positivism and the derived tools and methods in the various disciplines involved in studying disasters. And we seem to be finally thinking beyond Western ontologies. Indeed. And this is why today we want to focus on methodologies and engagement with theory, and also the creative approach to the way we do research and the ways that we actually can challenge the normative. And so today we're really, really excited to talk to two wonderful scholars whose work features in the DPM special issue, Emergent Voices. And as you know, this whole season is um, kind of focusing on the special issue and we're talking with early career research. And so join us today, uh, Sarah Kelly and Noemi Gonzalez-Bautista. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Noemi. Hi. Hello. Dr. Sarah Kelly is a postdoc at the Dartmouth College and at the Centro de Investigación para la Gestión Integrada del Riesgo de Desastres uh, in Santiago, Chile. Um, and Sarah is also a director of the Kelly Laboratory that supports community-based needs for environmental justice. Sarah has been working extensively with Mapuche Uiche communities on water energy studies and cartography projects that support their territorial autonomy. And Noemi Gonzalez Bautista is a PhD candidate in anthropology at the Université Rabai in Canada. Their PhD research focuses on the social relations between the professional firefighters and the people from the Atikamek First Nation who are involved in wildfire management. Welcome, Sarah and Noemi. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's really great to have you both on the show. It's, it's just so wonderful to hear new voices. Um, and we want to learn a little bit more about you and your work. So how did you end up in kind of this disaster scholarship space? And what does it mean for you and your research? And Sarah, I'll start with you. Thanks for this question. And thanks so much for the invitation. Um, I'm really happy to be here. So yeah, I just, I did kind of stumble into disaster studies, as I imagine a number of people have. Um, I've always been a water researcher. Uh, I was trained in community-based participatory research. Um, and so as I started studying uh, hydropower conflicts in collaborative research with Mapuche Uiche, ancestral leaders and communities in southern Chile, I started thinking more with disaster scholarship. And then I've really found a home um, with the Linea Cuatro Culturas de Desastre that Dr. Manuel Teroni um, leads at Sihiden in Santiago. And thinking about um, creative methodologies to support more equitable and just water and energy management has really aligned with disaster studies and the creative methodologies to work with local knowledge for um, kind of more just resource management, but also um, thinking about how extractive agendas are leading to more disastrous um, settings in Chile and elsewhere. Great. Thank you so much. Nemi, what about you? How did you end up here in this disaster scholarship? Yeah, it's it's kind of uh, accidental too, a little <laughs> bit, because uh, 
I started um, I started in a project with my advisor that was more about uh, the relation between indigenous people and the forest industry. But um, I chose like a very specific aspect of forest management, which was which is forest fire management. Uh, in fact, just because when I started my master's degree at the time, uh, a forest fire had burned near the Atikamek community of Wemantashi just the year before. So I, I found like a lot of uh, article in newspaper about that. And I was like, oh, why not? I could work on that. Um, but at the time I was not really, I was more into indigenous studies and, and looking at forest management. So not really into disaster study, but after mm -hmm. like a couple of years, I, I've read some, some, some literature from disaster studies, but nothing really caught my eyes that much. And it's only when I, well, I mean, I'm sorry, no offense for <laughs> everything I've read, but I don't know why, but it's really when I read the article by uh, A.J. Faz and Roberto Barrios, mm -hmm. uh, mm. Applied Anthropology of Risk, mm. Hazard, and Disasters, um, that was in Human Organization, I think in 2015. Mm. And that really resonated with my kind of political ecology perspective. And after that, I really positioned myself in uh, my research in disaster studies. And um, in fact, it, it was really, really relevant because it gave me like the theoretical tools to think about the relationships I was studying because I was really at the intersection between indigenous people and uh, official non-indigenous management organizations. So, mm. and, and, and I was looking at that during a disaster during a forest fire. So it really gave me everything I needed uh, to connect those worlds together and to look at um, also like power dynamics and inequalities, which was important for me. Mm -hmm. Could I just add that um, I just really like the way Naomi phrased that and that, you know, in having this conversation about research position, researcher positionality, I think it was also me being in that role, an intermediary role as they were facing a disaster, um, Puchuichu people were facing a disaster with water uh, scarcity and contamination, um, that I also found the disaster studies to be kind of the field to really work with um, that made sense. So it was, that was helpful to say that, Naomi, thanks. Thanks to you both for um, just kind of letting us know why this space is important to you and why you're engaging in the way that you are. And I want to follow up on um, what you were saying, Noemi, about your approach to to research. And um, it's something we obviously care a lot about on on this podcast and the discussions we have about root causes of disaster inevitably we we end up talking about um where oppression is coming from we talk about colonialism patriarchy racism all of these processes that create risk um, and yet as you were alluding to reading a lot of disaster scholarship it's quite normative um, and systems of oppression are are not often mentioned and so um 
we're really interested in in your work and how you're exploring the manifestation of of these oppressions um following indigenous feminist theories um and i i just uh love your approach and want to hear more about it so could you tell us a bit more about your theoretical approach to disaster research and and maybe speak a little bit to why you think many scholars are are not talking about oppression yeah um so right now it's kind of weird because I'm everything. I mean, most of the the thing I'm reading and the people I'm working with in disaster studies, they are talking about operations and mm. all that. But that's true that I have to remember. And sometimes when I stumble on an article from another discipline or another approach, mm. I realize that yeah, there are still a lot of um, a lot of scholars, a lot of domains where. Um, people are studying disasters and are not looking at operations. Um, and yeah, probably there are like, a, of course, a lot of reason, uh, a lot of reasons behind that. But um, uh, thinking about that, probably one reason is that a lot of scholars have the privilege to not see oppressions, if I can say it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I think that when you start looking at uh, systems of oppressions uh, in disasters and in your research, in your approaches, then you have to look at a lot of other things. Like you have to look at disaster studies, disaster management. You have to look at your own positionality, your own privilege, uh, your own institution. So I think it's, it can be kind of uh, maybe too challenging for some people so it's easier to not look into it at all which is not an excuse or a good reason but it can i think it can explain sometimes uh, why and as you said in the introduction i think a big part of disaster studies um, uh, is rooted in in disciplines where the myth of objectivity objectivity and Mm. neutrality in science still exists yeah so Mm. A lot of scholars, I think, uh, believe that if they look, if they look at oppression or or if they talk about oppression, they're going to lose their objectivity. Mm. And Mm. uh, I talk about that in in the article in in DPM uh, because I have kind of experienced that because my my first master's degree is in biology and environmental science. Mm. So when I started, uh, studying uh, anthropology, I had this belief. <laughs> I wanted right. to do like an objective mm. research. Yeah. Um, mm. And so I didn't, when I started my PhD research, for example, I didn't have like a, a feminist perspective at all. I didn't even have like a, 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 a anything about gender at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but fortunately, what I had, because I was working in indigenous studies, uh, with indigenous communities, I I wanted to use the indigenous methodologies that have been that have been developed by a lot of uh, indigenous scholars, and so there there are a lot of them are for indigenous scholars, so they can uh, they can do research in, in uni- at the university uh, while still respecting their own epistemology. Uh, and do a research that is more that is more uh, aligned with uh, the way they want to do it, but also a lot of the scholars uh, like Linda Tuiwai Smith or Margaret Kovac or Wilson mm-hmm. Smith, mm-hmm. they are also developing methodologies 
for non-indigenous people who are working with indigenous communities. Yeah. So mm. I I had that at the beginning of my PhD research. Um, and during my field work, I realized that, in fact, not taking gender into account and not including a feminist perspective was problematic. Uh, because in the end, I had mostly men doing interviews with me to talk yeah. about the fires I was studying. And because I didn't want to, like, choose people I was talking to, you know, I wanted to do it more randomly so I didn't influence um, uh, people and I didn't influence the research, once again, to be kind of more neutral, more objective. But a researcher is part of the network mm. they are studying. We are part of the network we are studying. We, are, we have an impact on, on people. We have an impact on the situation we are studying. So we have to accept that. And that's why I, I chose to be more active on that and, and find women to participate in the research. And, I, and after doing that, I realized that it was necessary to have a more uh, relevant research to have like a, a more complete view of what happened during the forest fire I was studying. So in fact, in the end, it was more scientific and kind of more uh, relevant to do that, to have uh, an influence on, 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 on the research or, or to accept we have an influence on the research and, and, and act uh, accordingly. So from my positionality as a white person from the university, Mm. I was not neutral when I was going to an indigenous community. And the way I presented my subject, I had more men wanting to talk about it. And it was a problem with my research. So I had to compensate that and uh, and be active to have more women. And when I see uh, the differences between the experiences of women and men, I realized that even with my own a feminist perspective, which is more like an intersectional, uh, intersectional feminism, but from a person with a white person from Europe, mm -hmm. uh, it was mm -hmm. not enough to understand the complexity of the situation. So that's when I kind of uh, started exploring indigenous feminist perspectives and realized that it was a, a great tool to understand how patriarchal colonialism uh, was present in disaster situation, was present in the mm. forest fires situation I was studying, and how official procedures could um, kind of reinforce this patriarchal colonialism, and how it would kind of be entangled with um, traditional gender roles uh, from Atikamekw people. It was a very complex situation that indigenous feminist perspective could um, uh, put light on. And so just like to summarize everything I just kind of confusingly said, uh, I think what it means is that it's important in disaster research to adapt our methodology to the people we are working with, but to do that in relation with our own positionality too. I, I just really like um, how honest you are, you know, about your own process, because I think very often um, so many academics just kind of pretend that 
they know it all right and straight away um <laughs> yeah. understand everything so yeah thank you so much for this reflection um i, I wish more 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 of us would, would reflect on positionality mm-hmm. um and I'm going to move to Sarah because some of the um, themes, and well, in fact, I think most of the themes are very prominent throughout the season here. Um, and we have been talking, and we are talking, and we will be talking more about kind of oppression um, and coloniality. And so um, Jason and I have been really lucky that we got to see all the special issue papers mm-hmm. before they were online. Yay, you know, the perks <laughs> of having a podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so, Sarah, we really, really enjoyed the paper that you've done with um, Valentina Carraro, Jose Luis Vargas, Patricio um, Milianca, and Jose Miguel Baldas Negron. And so, whilst community mapping exercises are kind of, you know, they've particularly become pretty common in recent years um, in disaster scholarship, but also in development studies in general, um, you guys are using cartographic methodology that allows to explore the interplay of the pandemic with uh, long-standing colonial processes, as well as the process of resistance. Um, and this is just so fascinating. And this is what I kind of want to um, for you to tell us a little bit more about. So how did you come up with this idea of um, employing cartographic methodology in the way that you've done? And what have you learned through, through this process and also through the collaboration with the indigenous people? Uh- Thank you so much for this question. It's a big question. Um, so yeah, I am here today to represent and share a paper that's part of a collaboration with um, scholars at Sihiden, Valentina, um, Jose Miguel, who's collaborating then, and um, also led by our colleagues at Mapo Express. And Mapo Express is an independent journalism collective um, of made up of primarily Mapuche journalists. And so Patricio and Jose Luis are part of the collective. And this project actually came about, I've been collaborating with Mapuche Uiche ancestral leaders and communities since 2014 um, around water and energy, just as we talked about earlier. And so as the disaster, as the pandemic um, was declared as such, and we started seeing um, what it was looking like, uh, I was in touch with Jose Luis Vargas, who is one of the co-authors and who is um, a friend because we've both been kind of providing technical support and collaborating with One LOF, which is a socio-political unit of Mapuche territory for many years. And we'd met actually at um, a ceremony many years before and just been in touch. And so we were talking about what was happening in the territory that we both met at, met in, uh, and they were, they had a control territory else. They put up a sanitary barrier and they declared this territorial control that they were doing. And it was starting to, these are starting to pop out um, throughout Puche territory. And then we started to see other indigenous territories, indigenous peoples throughout Chile also um, creating territorial controls. And so a really an interest in that phenomena, um, sparked the project and so we brought this group at Sihiden including uh, we, we brought this tool proposal to Mapo Express and said would you like to work with this tool Valentina has done really important interesting work I think in Palestine um, around open street mapping and so she knew these tools and so we worked to kind of co-develop the tool with Mapo Express and then in conversation with a number of different Mapuche territories about the tool and about what icons should be present on the map. 
And so we worked with a graphic artist who's done a lot of support for Mapuche communities over the years. And they also helped us to come up with the icons. And I think the icons in our maps are um, some of the important kind of findings of our paper as well. And so we mapped um, what were seen as more Mapu Express suggested a lot of the icons and we work with them to kind of group them so in a way that would be visible and work well on the map so we mapped uh state violence we mapped extractivism um so there's kind of a double of, of economic development projects that were environmental impact assessment process during the pandemic um in the kind of early months which is what our paper looks at um from mm. april to august and so we were trying to understand those phenomena but then there were also all of these kind of alternative um community risk management efforts, we could say, in disaster studies, right? But all these um, Oya Kamuns, which are um, kind of free food where people come together to make a, a big meal and share it. Then there was a lot of kind of alternative Mapuche medicines and um, these these um, kind of different ways of confronting the disaster from different ways of knowing. And But the main phenomena was the, these territorial control points, which really, in some cases, like Tarua in the Biobio region, became these, you know, lasting a year, lasting a very long time, and including a lot of different solidarity networks and organizing and sovereignty being expressed and different political organizations. So um, the map was really to kind of, we were interested in understanding the spatial distribution of these different phenomena, and other mm -hmm. people were too. So it was really to just to create this common instrument on a platform that we knew is the trusted news source in Southern Chile. And so, it, well, you know, we tried to get more participation and due to people being more rural areas, there being other concerns, poor connection, it didn't work in the way we, we anticipated. But because Mapo Express has this incredible grassroots journalism network and relationships of trust with Mapuche communities, and, and, and we, we did some as well, we were able to source the information and the map was able to be, um, the published map was able to be a source for different territories and communities to cite and look to to see what was happening. Um, so yeah, I'd say for this project, what we learned and you know, what we, what we saw going into it, but we were able to better qualitatively understand is that, you know, mainly the disaster, particularly in indigenous territories in Chile was, was being represented in terms of quantitative statistics, deaths, mm -hmm. um, exposure rates, et cetera. Um, and there was a much more important story about how this disaster was being lived out and kind of the, the ways it intersected with existing vulnerabilities, um, not just uh, socio-natural, but also political. So that was um, kind of you, seeing the possibility of community mapping and in a, in a research arrangement that is um, more related to local needs and local knowledge. Um, I think we really saw that this is a methodological approach that could be um, used in different disasters in the future, this type of community mapping um, using open source map technologies and also collaborating with local institutions of trust to Mapuche communities mm. here in this case, just seeing that this model really has uh, potential to be used in other disasters and really in other phases of, uh, of disaster planning and not just um, disaster um, response or understanding and visualizing what's happening with the disaster in, in a more complex, integral way um, and also decolonized way. So um, that's the, it was really a methodological 
take home, I think, from that project. And, you know, I've been doing uh, community mapping, cultural cartography with Mapuche Kuiche communities um, over the last nine years now. And, um, you know, I've come to, I've written in a few of those instances, I've written legal reports for um, the environmental courts for cases where um, Mapuche indigenous rights were being infringed upon through the hydropower development process. And, mm. uh I've come to and working with collaborators, walking with and learning with them, thinking about the, their responses. They're often portrayed in the media as being activist or terrorism responses, but mm. really it's a more than human disaster risk management that I believe that we're seeing. And, and, you know, Mapuche territorial defense is often in relation to Nyan, which are spirit guardians and in hydropower often it's related to Nyan Ko, which are spirit guardians of water or Nyan Mapu, which are spirit guardians of the land. But those are sites of um, cultural and spiritual significance, but they're also sites that Western science, in quotes, right, could also recognize as sites of biodiverse, of extreme biological diversity, of extreme ecosystem importance. And so these, although it might be hard for Western knowledge to kind of um, come in and uh, confirm that, right? These are, there's, there's a, their knowing of these disasters is based on thousands of years of observation and knowing these sites are very important. And so I think it's, Community mapping allows for visualizing those different ways of knowing and different ways of knowing disaster risk management. And I found in my collaborations working with artists, it's also an incredible way to not render sites uh, vulnerable to, uh-huh. for example, not geolocating them exactly, but also allows for communicating um, aspects of knowing that are that escape Western cartography. And so that's just another methodological piece in terms of talking about creative methodologies that I think is really important. And there's a lot more to be explored there methodologically in the future. Thank you. This is so, so interesting. I, and of course, you know, I hope our audience will uh, read both papers and we'll link them um, in the show notes. But I have a kind of follow-up question to both of you. Um, you so you both uh, referred and alluded to one way or the other about these different ways of knowing. And of course, you both um, in, in your research worked with um, indigenous people. And so I wonder, how did you talk um, w- w- with the communities about disasters, you know, about vulnerabilities and um, uh, resilience, right, for choice of a better word. So how did you kind of translate, and I use qu- quotation marks here, all these concepts that we just use so sort of frivolously in disaster mm-hmm. scholarship without giving it a second thought, right, because we presume that everybody understands it in a way that we do, but yet we of course know that these concepts um, are nonsensical very often, um, and they don't they don't kind of translate and they're meaningless. Um, so Naomi, can I start with you and then I'll come back to you, Sarah? Well, to be honest, I so my my just just to clarify that my research in my research I did two kind of two different field work, uh, two ethnographies we could say, uh, because I worked on on one side with the Atikamek community of women Dashi doing interviews with people there, uh, but I also did interviews and field work with the regional. Um, 
firefighting organization, forest firefighting organization, so mm. uh, So those words, I didn't really use them uh, in my questions or in, in conversation with people, uh, but I used them in, 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 in the dissertation itself and in articles and in my reflections because they make sense for at least part of, uh, of the participant of my research, at least for the, uh, the forest firefighting, um, mm. people. And because they allow us to put this research and this reflection in, in the reflection around, uh, disaster studies. Mm. But like one, one, one thing that that can put lights on that is that the, the forest fire experiences that I studied, like the three the three fires that I studied, uh, especially the the more recent one, doesn't stay in the memories of people as something that much negative. Uh, so first, you have to know that the the, the village was was saved, uh, no no houses burned, and and there were no people injured or anything. Uh, but they still lose like a lot of their ancestral territories, like a lot of cabin where they went, where they usually go with the family to hunt and to do other, um, other activities on the land. So it was still mm -hmm. uh, a lot of grief and loss. But what came up in the interviews were more uh, positive aspects. And it was a surprise for me at the beginning. You know, it was about uh, the connection that were uh, created in the community during the fires. Uh, and it was about how they felt more confident about the future and more confident about themselves, about the Atikamek way of life, the Atikamek culture, about the protection from their ancestors and everything. That was really, really important uh, in what people were, were, were telling me. So, um, and I don't think it goes into like the concept of resilience or or anything. Mm -hmm. I don't want to put it in that kind of of box because it would it would not mm -hmm. make sense. So so I think those those words are important in disaster studies and disaster management, and we have to to talk about them because they are used to build procedures that are, that are going to be. Uh, use with indigenous communities and other mm. communities, but we have to to understand that they don't always make sense for for mm. for those communities, as you, as you said. And yeah, for me, the the best like strategy was just to not use those words if the people I was talking to were not using them. So mm. <laughs> it was just afterward for my analysis that I would uh, I would use what participants shared with me to think about uh, vulnerability, to think about uh, resilience uh, in a critical way. Yeah, no, the, the, it's great. It's, it's really, really interesting. What about you, Sarah? I think that's a really great question. I was, you know, disaster management was was a, something I talked about early on with Uchiwichi um, communities when I started researching with them because uh, they were really opposed to how the there was forced evacuations at one point for volcanic eruptions in their territory. And mm -hmm. uh, the certain communities I was meeting with were talking about how they actually believed they had to be in the territory when there were volcanic eruptions due mm -hmm. to kind of what the, um, what the nyan of the volcanoes would communicate. And it, it was actually the safest place to be. And so kind of 
it was I heard these discussions of, of the issues with disaster management early on due to that do what it happened what happened around volcanic eruptions um, however you know I, I in my academic work I think about uh, vulnerability a lot and vulnerability is not a concept that is is commonly discussed in, the, in that way in Spanish um, which is the common language that we would speak um, and so you know Mapuche Weiche communities and participatory map making they they talked more about threats and and one of the maps that we did which was primarily about different extractive industry development um, they called it the map of threats and so I came mm -hmm. to see like around working with maps that we we it was maps were an important tool to kind of be clear about what we were translating between different knowledges or different ways of knowing the world. So maps became a great tool as we're talking about what is a map about, what are the icons? And that was also true in, in the, you know, the paper and the collaboration with Mapo Mac Express is that as we were working mm -hmm. between these different ways of knowing these different worlds, the talking about the icons really performed, really created a process to discuss the terms around disaster management and really think about, think critically and creatively about how to visualize them in a way that was respectful of these different ways of knowing and being. Thank you so much, Sarah. We are so inspired by this special issue, by all of the people who are, um, you know, fighting for these values in disaster studies. Um, and, and we just want to thank you both so much for sharing with us about your approach to disaster research i think um i would i would call it not only creative but respectful and mm -hmm. reciprocal and humanizing um and these are all things that we need to see more of and we have a lot of practitioners and researchers and students that that listen and i think um and i hope that everybody who's listening will um find a source of inspiration here today and be encouraged to take time to reflect on their own positionality and their theoretical approach to the work they are doing. Um, so thank you both so much for participating and for sharing with us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really an honor to be part of this conversation. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason, and us, Sarah Kelly, and Noemi Gonzalez-Bautista on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. <laughs>